Ecclesiastes chapter 8. While you're turning there, I'm going to start to read. We're going to go through the whole chapter together this morning. Verse 1. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there's a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Verse 10, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that's done on earth, how neither day nor night does anyone does one's eyes see sleep. Then I see all the work of God that man cannot find out, the, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Let's ask God's blessing on His Word. Lord, open up. Our hearts, our minds, uh, open up your word to us today so that we can be, Lord, um, so that we can understand you better, know to love you better, know of your love for us better. And Lord, as we tackle some uh, pretty real things this morning, Lord, I pray for grace in communicating this to my beloved brothers and sisters here, uh, Lord, that you would speak and you would hide me behind the cross. In, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we needed all of chapter 8 to understand any of chapter 8, in my opinion. And so that's why we talked about it in the way that, in the fullness that we did. I know it's a long text. We're going to get through it this morning. But verses 1 through 9, they discuss obedience and wisdom. Okay? Verses 10 through 13 discuss wickedness and death. And then 14 through 17, they reflect on the higher ways of God. And I think these things are connected, as we'll see. The first half of this chapter, though, is all kind of a recurring theme that we've heard before. Okay, It's this theme of wisdom versus wickedness or foolishness. 
Okay, And since this is content that we've looked at a few times already in Ecclesiastes together, I don't want us to get just lulled to sleep and like, okay, this is more talk about wisdom um, just because Solomon compares it again. All right, I, I think there's some really special things kind of tucked away in the text here that I want to uncover together. So with me, mentally kind of uh, clear off your shovel and let's get ready to dig in again. This morning. Alright? And right off the bat in verse 1, we get these kind of rhetorical questions. You guys know what a rhetorical question is, right? It's, it's a question that's asked, but you're not really supposed to answer it because the answer is already obvious. It's so obvious. And so Solomon is saying in verse 1, a truly wise person is a really rare thing. Who can know it? Who can know that kind of a person? Who can be that kind of a person? This is exactly what his point was, I think, at the end of chapter 7, where he said he might be able to find one wise person out of 2,000 men and women, 1,000 men, 1,000 women. He said, maybe I find one wise. You guys know what percentage one out of 2,000 is? I had to get my calculator out because you know I'm not very good at math. 0.05%. Of the population. That's a very small percentage. What he means is it is extremely rare. But here's the really cool thing that he gets into after that. It's rare, but godly wisdom changes a person. Look at, look at what he says at the, at the end of, where'd I go here? At the end of verse one. A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. That's what I think it means when it says it makes his face shine. It's written all over that person's face. Think back to James chapter 3 from last week. Right? James chapter 3 shared with us what real wisdom is and what real wisdom is not. Okay, And it's known how. How does, is a wise person known and how is a foolish person known? By their conduct. right? By how they live. I don't think this is complicated. This isn't hard for us to understand, especially in 2020. You know most of what you need to know by how a person acts, by how they speak to people. So it's obvious that this person's face, who has godly wisdom, is different. It's shining. And I think it it helps us understand this truth. The presence of God in a person changes that person dramatically. We're never the same. Paul agrees with this, and he says, you are new creation in Christ. The old things are gone. The new has come. The presence of God in a person's life changes that person dramatically. And Solomon, kind of in his wisdom, poetic literature, says it this way. Their face shines. They're different from the outside even. Now, verses 2 through 5, if we agree that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, then this could be Solomon just referring to himself. Look at verse 2. He says, I say, keep the king's command. Okay, he would be the king in this instance if we agree that he wrote this. Uh, in that time, Solomon would have been the most, one of the most, if not the most, powerful rulers, richest rulers in all of the known world. And so he says it would fit then for him to do this. He, would, he instructs his readers to obey who's in charge, to obey the king. Now think about Proverbs. If you've ever read Proverbs, who is kind of the audience that he's referring to often? My son. He refers to the reader as my son. And so he's saying, guys, 
My son, listen to my voice. Listen to the king. Because I've experienced all these things, you should really learn from my mistakes and heed my words. That's what he's saying here. And in verse 2, he refers to an oath that God makes. This is maybe a little confusing. We've heard of the oaths that we make to God and that sort of a thing. But it's true. God has promised his people that he was going to sustain them and he was going to take care of them and remain with them. I want to highlight a verse in Psalm chapter 89. You can turn there if you want. I'm just going to start reading it. Psalm 89, 28. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I'll punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. And of course, by David, he's also referring to Christ who comes from that lineage. Okay? He's not going to go back on his word. And he's made an oath to his people. And so if a king has been established by God to lead his people, Solomon advises the reader, hey, listen to the king. Listen to the king's commands. Do what he says. Uh, they're also, the readers are also encouraged to not be too quick to leave the king's presence, to go out from under his authority. And he says, don't plant your flag on an evil course of action, on an evil way. Don't support an evil cause because the king has the power to do whatever he wants. And a king could end their life. Look at verse 3, at the end of verse 3. He does whatever he pleases. The beginning of verse 4, the word of the king is supreme. So Israel at this point in biblical history, Israel at this point was more or less a monarchy, right? So they had one king who was in charge. He was governing and ruling over the people. And yet this king was still under God. And that's unfortunately a thing that a lot of the kings forgot. And I would venture to say that a lot of world rulers today forget that they're still under God. But the same was true in Israel. And this basically just meant a monarchy was absolute rule. The king had the power. He could do what he wanted. And so it would take, as in the end of verse 4, it would take a great deal of courage to come up before a king and say, hey, wait a second, what are you doing? Are you sure about this? A lot of times they probably shouldn't do that. Now, I don't think that this is trying to teach that the king is untouchable or that the king is unaccountable, but that proper respect really ought to be shown to God's authority, God's chosen king. That's confirmed in the book of Romans. Chapter 8, verse 5 here also reminds us as the reader that obedience or keeping the king's commands will lead us down the proper path in the proper time toward good and not evil. Toward good and not evil. Look at verse 6. This more or less repeats chapter 3, verse 1. That, that famous text that we've heard before about how there's a time for everything under the sun. For everything there's a season. A time for every matter under heaven is what he said. Verse 6 uses the exact same phrasing as verse 5 though. Which I think is interesting. He says there's a time and a way for everything. But it adds here, although man's troubles lie heavy upon him. 
Now, I don't need a show of hands in this room or the next to ask you if you feel like there are heavy burdens laid on you right now. Because I know that there are. We've, we've heard several of them in our families in the church already this morning. There are heavy burdens on our families. There are heavy burdens on us. And for those unaffected by the wisdom of God and the obedience of the king, this is even more so the case. Trouble lies heavy on them. For those who don't understand what it means by the proper time and the just way, they actually bring trouble on themselves. Let me ask you something. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been in such a hurry to do something that you didn't properly weigh the outcome, like what might happen if you do this, and you ended up making a mess of things? Anybody done that before? Um, there's a TV show called America's Funniest Home Videos. It's kind of based off of people that, that do that. So, you know, they, they think, oh, this is a good idea. Um, let me drive 30 mile an hour toward this wooden ramp. Didn't weigh the outcome of what's going to happen to your dirt bike when you hit that ramp at 30 miles an hour, right? So maybe ours haven't been that drastic, but we've been in situations where we didn't think through what we should have thought through, and it really brought trouble back on us. Or have you ever thought that you knew the whole story about a situation, and so you kind of jumped to a conclusion, and then when you spent a little time digging into the details, you found out, ah, I didn't know all of, I didn't know everything, and I made a bad, rash decision here. We've all done those kinds of things. We can all identify with that. But look at verse 7, chapter 8. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? I actually like the, the way the King James phrases this. Let me read it from the KJV. For he knoweth not that which shall be, for who can tell him when it shall be? Now, again, this is another rhetorical question from the author here he doesn't expect an answer because the answer is it's obvious right it's glaringly obvious here you don't know what's coming in life and not only that but no one else under the sun does either we don't know we can evaluate things as best that we can and we should do those things but we don't know what's coming 2020 has taught us that over and over again. We have no idea what the future holds. And here's how we know this is absolutely 100% true. If you are doubting this, here's how we know it's true. It's verse 8. No one has on earth has power over death. Nobody has power over death. God knows and God determines every one of our days, not any of us, no matter how hard we try. And not only that, but if you're t captured as a prisoner of war, there's no guarantee that you're going to make it home. This is kind of the language that he uses here. You're not promised to get another day back at home. But at the same time, those who are given to it, talking about war and death, those who are given to it, they aren't rescued from the dangers of war by being cruel in battle, by being wicked. You guys have heard the, the old saying, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword, right? That's, that's actually an old saying that comes from Jesus. Uh, 
talked, he, he said this to Peter in the garden. Peter drew his sword to stop them from taking Jesus, and he told them to put it away. And he told them, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. Another similar biblical truth from Jesus says, you reap what you sow. I think we understand that. If you sow in wickedness and you sow in cruelty, Solomon is saying that there is a good chance that you're going to die the same way. You're going to die by the same means. And he observed all of these things, he says in verse 9. He observed all of these things specifically when man had power over man to his hurt. This is an interesting phrase. Solomon clearly observed thousands of years ago the same things that we observe today. Death, oppression, man hurting man. It's, it's the same. We live in the same world. And this, is, this gives truth to what he repeats over and over in this book of there's nothing new under the sun. This is all the same. He addressed this very thing of oppression back in chapter 4. You can glance back there with me. He says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. This helps us understand that phrase there when he says, when man had power over man to his hurt. Even the best and godliest kings of Israel... And even the best and most conservative American presidents fall prey to the human problem of abusing authority. Even the most godly pastors in our churches can fall prey to abusing authority. We've seen it time and time again. It has happened and it's going to continue to happen because our hearts are darkened by the stain of sin. That's the reality of the world that we live in. But the call on the Christian is not just to try to be better. It's to actually put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. This is straight from Colossians chapter 3, verse 10 through 14. Here there is not Greek, there's not Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Put on then, he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. So he says, put on compassionate hearts. Put on kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. These are words that the American people need to hear. These are words that you and I need to hear. This is what I would hope is that we long, we earn, yearn is the right word, we yearn for in our culture. This, this, these are things that we want to see reflected in our society and in ourselves. And this is what we should continue working for as people who claim the name of Christ. We should continue working to put on compassionate hearts, to put on kindness, to put on humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another in love. This is what we should be about Saving sinners and renewing their minds is how Christ, I believe, is making all things new. He's making this world new 
but it's not going to be completed on this earth without him. And we are trying every different way imaginable to bring peace about without Jesus. And it's just not going to work. There may be it for a time, but it will never be lasting. It will never be complete. It will not reach to every person because it does not involve Christ. Only with him can there be real peace. There's not an alternative theory. There's not any kind of improved equality program or anything like that. No earthly wisdom that's going to bring about unity. There's no earthly plan that's going to bring about peace It's only the life-changing infusion of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Christians. That's the only way this is going to affect the world. Now, this is why the church must, and in my notes, must is capitalized. This is why the church must share the truth of the gospel to a world that is looking for every possible alternative besides submission to Jesus. If we believe that we have a message that saves sinners and the world is full of sinners, what does it say about the church if we don't go and speak to them about their sin? What does it say about me if I don't speak to them about their sin? He is still and always will be the only way. Now look at verse 10 through 14. Uh, we're going to deal with all these together because they kind of, kind of weigh with the same thing. Wickedness versus the fear of God. This is something that we talked about recently. Um, and as an example of this, Solomon offers up this, um, this example of a funeral of a seemingly very pious person, a seemingly very righteous person. This person, he says, would go in and out of the holy place and be praised for what they did there. They were praised for their religiosity. On the surface, this person seemed like a God-fearing person, but actually, they were wicked. It says in verse 11 that since there was not immediate punishment for doing wrong, for their wickedness, their hearts were more and more set to do evil. Do you know what this means? You know what this is getting at here? They abused the patience of God. God was being patient to them in their wickedness, and they saw that as that God didn't care. And what did it cause them to do? It didn't cause them to repent and thank God for his patience. It caused them to dive further into their wickedness. Their hearts were more and more set to do evil. Look at verse 12. After all, a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. That's what it says there. Now jump down to verse 14 for just a second. For more on this. By earthly reasons, by earthly standards, what's happening here is more than just kind of like curious or suspect. We could be tempted to to look at these things, and maybe you've seen this in life, where a, a wicked person lives a lot longer than a righteous person does. You've observed this, and you say, well, wait a second. We can be tempted to either believe that God doesn't really care about what we do or that God is not actually just. And both of those things would be false assumptions. But this idea, seeing these things and hearing Solomon even observe these things, it kind of sets off this this, uh, problem, this complaint, if you will, in that justice quadrant of our brains. Because I think we've all got that. 
You know, when a kid takes a toy from another kid, they get angry because that's not fair. That's that sense of justice. I think we're made in the image of God that we have. We see and we recognize. This is another theme that we've talked about. It seems like the wicked live a lot longer while the righteous suffer and have their lives cut short. It seems that way. But you guys know another old saying that things aren't always what they seem, right? Now Solomon knows this and he is so convinced that he is now trying to convince us that while it appears that the wicked succeed, the truth is that it will be well with those who fear God. It is well for those who fear God. And just for the record, verse 13 confirms the eventual outcome for the sinner who does not fear God. It says, it will not be well with the wicked. You know what else this sounds like? It sounds like a a passage from Isaiah chapter 57. I'd like for us to turn there. Grab your Bible. Isaiah chapter 57. Probably just a few pages over in your Bible. Look at the first couple verses and then verses 11 through 13 with me. Isaiah 57. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. And now jump down to verse 11. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me and did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. You see the similarities there from Ecclesiastes 8? But notice the differences in the funeral of a righteous person and the funeral of that wicked person that was talked about in chapter 8, verse 10 of Ecclesiastes. In 8.10... The wicked person's funeral is this big deal, right? People are praising them and they're having a party and they're saying all kinds of nice things about this person. They're praised in the city, it says. But in Isaiah 57, verse 1, the funeral of a righteous person looks way different, doesn't it? It's almost like no one even notices. It's almost like they've been forgotten completely. The ESV footnotes, if you've got a study Bible in the ESV, are helpful here. It says this, the preacher, talking about what we think is Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, trusts divine revelation to be more reliable than even his own empirical observation and to know that ultimately he knows that justice will be done. There are a lot of instances where we're looking around right now And we're saying, I don't get this. I don't understand this. I don't see how this is fair or right. But brothers and sisters, we have to trust, as it says here, divine revelation. We have to trust God more than even what our eyes are telling us. Because we don't know it all. 
Who is wise like that among you? Not me. I don't know about you, but I know it's not me. Even though we don't understand the times and the ends of our lives, and we don't know when our death is coming, undoubtedly God has a reason for it. He has not revealed it to us, but this shouldn't make us conclude that it doesn't matter if we fear God or not. And that's the temptation here. So he's addressing in Isaiah 57 as well. And even though our feelings, even though what we see and hear and feel might be telling us otherwise, we have to understand that it will be well for those who fear God. It will be well for those who fear God. For those who fear the Lord, but still might go from us into his presence, remember what Isaiah 57 says here. Those people are entering into peace, they are possessing the land, and they are inheriting his holy mountain. What a glorious comfort to know that God rewards the death of a righteous person with such eternal and incredible gifts of grace. Flip back to Ecclesiastes, verse 12 of chapter 8. Solomon sums up the difference of where a person spends eternity or not by with one word, N-O-T, not. In verse 12, he says, it will be well with those who fear God. In verse 13, it says, it will not be well with the wicked. That one little word, three-letter word, makes the difference in all of eternity. Will it be well with you or will it not be well with you? How we live on this earth matters for all of eternity because how we live reflects whether we have a relationship with Christ or not. Now, let's finish this morning by looking at verses 15 through 17. We've just discussed that what we've said this morning, it's, it's not easy. And I can tell you that I don't understand it all. I don't understand why it seems like the righteous are given the results of the wicked and the wicked are given the results of the righteous. I don't understand the mind of God. And in a lot of ways, this is and this always will be a mystery to us. Even in heaven, I don't think we're going to know everything that God knows. And this is where Solomon ends up after trying to unravel the mind of God and the way things works. He says, nobody knows. No one. And even if a man claims to be wise, even if a man claims to know the mysteries of God, guess what? He's lying. That guy is lying. For someone to say, I know what God means, I know what God thinks in all of this, he's lying. Even, Even that kind of a person can't know. Spiritual people who sequester themselves away from the world in an attempt to find enlightenment and understand God are on a foolish pursuit. They cannot do it. Even the man, what does it say at the very end? Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. A wise man has been praised all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Proverbs, but even that person cannot find out the mind of God. He'll not figure it out. Solomon doesn't really explain why this is the case either, but he comments on it by saying that he commends joy. He says, I commend joy. Now, I think this is a weird thing. It, it was at first it kind of stick in there, commending joy, but really it's not. Now, since we know that none of us 
can fully figure it out. We can never know the mind of God fully. We shouldn't become so obsessed with attempting to understand and know what God is doing that we miss his good gifts here on earth. I think this is what Solomon is getting at. He repeats it again, that we should take pleasure in the simple things of life that bring joy. Look at verse 15. He says, like eating and like drinking and a hard day's work. These are things that we should find joy in. God's good and simple gifts sustain us all throughout our lifetimes. He commends this kind of a joy to us. Now, let's zoom out from all of this. Just take a big step back and kind of really from the whole chapter, specifically from these last three verses, but it's really from the whole chapter and get a snapshot, I think, of what we need to wrap our minds around with all of this today. This is the application part. And in a, in a nutshell, here's how I would summarize everything that we've talked about in chapter eight so far. And it's really simple. And I hope you remember this today. Walk by faith, not by sight. Walk by faith, not by sight. Now, you know, that's not original to me. These are the words of Paul in second Corinthians five, verse seven. But you know, what's so incredible about this. And if you wanted to turn there, you could, but read this later in second Corinthians five, verse seven, when he says, We walk by faith and not by sight. Do you know what he's right in the middle of talking to the Corinthian church about? Death. Death. He's talking to them about death and the differences between this mortal dwelling, the tent that we have that we live in now, and the eternal dwelling that we'll go to in heaven. Right in the middle of that, he says, but we walk by faith and not by sight. It's not, we, we hear that phrase and we see it printed on things. We walk by faith and not by sight is not what we tell ourselves when we can't find our golf ball on the golf course. Okay, that's, that's not what he means when your ball is lost in the rough. That's not what he means. It's more than just a trite little phrase that we say when we hope a certain situation works out. Well, we walk by faith, not by sight. That's true, but it's more than that. What Paul is saying, and I think what Solomon is hoping that we understand from chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes, is that in matters of life and death, in the big things, Paul says we have to put our faith in what we can't see. And we know that that's hard. But I think it's not just a coincidence. I think it's so much more than just a little ironic that Ecclesiastes 8 and 2 Corinthians 5 both talk about death in, con- in connection with what our eyes can't see and trusting what our eyes can't see and what our minds can't comprehend. And these things help us understand the majesty and the incomprehensible nature of God. One last thing. Let's flip back to the beginning of chapter 8, if you're not already there. We read verses 2 through 5 earlier as if it was referring to Solomon. And that could very likely be the case of how we should read it. But I want to go back and read it just together and point out some things really quickly with a different king in mind. I want to read it out loud again. And when the text refers to the king or, you know, the command of the king... This time I want you to have in your mind King Jesus. Okay? Verses 2 through 5. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. 
Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. Who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Now look back at these verses, and I want to make some connections with Jesus to help solidify this in our minds together. Look at the beginning of verse 2. John fourteen fifteen. Jesus says, if you love him, what are you going to do? Keep his commands. The end of verse 2, chapter 8. John six thirty nine. Jesus confirmed God's promise or his oath to raise him up on the last day. The beginning of chapter, or verse 3 of chapter 8. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus told his followers not to shy away, but to come near. He says, come near to him because his burden is light. He was telling the, the disciples to let the little children come near to him. We aren't hasty to go from his presence. He says, come near to me. Look at the end of verse 3 of chapter 8. In John 10, verse 18, Jesus made it known that he was going to lay his life down voluntarily because it pleased him to do so. The king does whatever pleases him. Verse 4 of Ecclesiastes 8, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, make clear that Jesus is the supreme authority and that no matter what, every knee is going to bow to him one day. He is supreme the beginning of verse 5 of Ecclesiastes 8, John fourteen twenty one, Jesus says that, be, that keeping his commands is a sign of true love and that the one who does so will be loved by the Father, will be loved by the Son, which is going to be evidenced by the Spirit being made known in that person and to that person. Ecclesiastes 8, 5, the end of verse 5, in John fourteen six. In the familiar verse you guys have heard before, Jesus said, He is the life, He is the truth, and He is the way. Folks, even though we aren't able to fully wrap our minds around the ways and works of our Lord, King Jesus, we can sing words like we did earlier, Oh, for grace to trust Him more, even when we can't see the outcome of what we're walking through. Because we walk by faith and not by sight. I pray that that would be our song as we move into a time of reflection and the Lord's Supper, that we would cry out to the Lord, oh, for grace to trust you more. Let's pray together. King Jesus, we, we pledge our faith uh, to you afresh today. Uh, Lord, we aren't capable of knowing everything that you know. You've told us not even really to try here. Uh, But I pray too that you would help us to stop fighting you for control because of that. We can't know what you know. And yet, when we recognize that, it generally doesn't teach us to trust you more. It teaches us to just try harder to figure you out. Lord, remind us this morning that that's not not what's going to happen. We cannot do that. Help us to stop fighting you for control. Instead, Lord, help our unbelief, especially when it comes to the really big stuff in life, like death. Give us grace to trust you more. Lord, we know that this isn't blind faith because you are as real to us as the air that we breathe. But in the seasons where we're tempted to doubt, 
and in the times when we're tempted to despair even. Lord, I pray that you would remind us, like you've done today, to walk by faith and not by sight. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.